we're going to look at the promised land today. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 8. And just to catch you up to speed a little bit, kind of get you where we're at in the story, let's walk through this just a little bit. We see that when we're looking at this map, you see the whole of, of Israel and where Jericho is, right there by Gilgal, those two together. God brings the people of Israel into the promised land, right? They cross the Jordan, um, they set up their 12 stones, and then they go and march around Jericho six times. And on the seventh day, they six days, seven days, they march around it seven times, the walls come down. Now there's some incredible, when we're looking at this, so in the natural we see all that happening. But in the spiritual, when you take this widened view of what's happening here, Jericho's kind of in the middle of the country. It's kind of to, to the left there. It's kind of in the heartland of, of Cana, right? So Jericho's kind of hard. It was also, Jericho was also the stronghold of Canaan, right? It was the city that had the fortified walls. It was the stronghold of the land. It was the most feared city. It was also the hardest to get into. Kind of, kind of let's take this and look at it from a spiritual point of view. Before we were saved, before we came to Christ, isn't that kind of our heart? Walled off, stony, hard, right? Nothing gets in there but what I want to get in there. But what the Lord does is he comes in and he pounds the heart. He begins to soften the heart and eventually tears down the walls. Now in Jericho, when that happens, God displays a curse on Jericho. Anyone who builds here again will be cursed. Their families will be cursed. In fact, there's been several attempts to build there and they eventually just tore it all down. It crumbled. Those people died. Crazy. So that's kind of our heart too, right? God doesn't build on that old stony heart. God begins to build on a soft, pliable heart, and that's kind of Gilgal. See Gilgal right there next to Jericho? That was kind of the hub of where Israel would operate out of. So whenever they would fight, whenever they would assemble, they would go and they'd come back to Gilgal. So the name Gilgal is really cool. It means, <clears throat> excuse me, it means a circle of stones, a wheel, or rolling away, right? And so when you think about wheels, especially in the Old Testament, you think of the Egypts and their chariots, and they were kind of five-spoked, so they had these spokes. And so Israel operated out of Gilgal, and they would go and fight, and then come back and restore and be rejuvenated. That's kind of how God works with us, right? We, he, he softens our heart and gives us a place to retreat to, that place where He is, that place where He comforts us. And so this soft place becomes a stronghold for the kingdom of God. And so just looking at it from that view and, and seeing how things go, it's kind of a neat picture of what God has done in our heart. But that's not the only thing. So we also see that when the Israelites came into, Jeru into the Canaan, Canaanite land, they also had to go fight Ai. Now they got pretty cocky after they, they think they curb stomped Jericho. They got excited and they're like, okay, guys, let's go. We're headed out to Ai. We only need two grand, 2,000 people. Let's go fight. So they run over to Ai, and they lose 36 men. We don't hear of Israel losing 36 men or anybody throughout these battles. I'm sure they did, but we don't hear about it. They got, Israel got curb stomped and sent back to Gilgal, licking their wounds, okay? And so God said, hey, you kind of went without me. You didn't ask me. You got cocky, and you ran out and did it on your own. 
That's kind of what we do, right? We get saved, we get cocky, we get excited, and let's go tackle the smoking. I got I to gotta cut the smoking out, right? We try to quit smoking and we fail miserably. Or, or we try to quit all the drinking or, all, or whatever, whatever proclivities we have, we try to do that in our flesh because we're different. We got to cut that off, right? That's not how God operates. Who tore down the walls of Jericho? Oh, I thought it was Joshua. Was it Joshua? I, the song was about Joshua, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. No? Yeah, no. God fought the bo- battle. Battle? God fought the battle at Jericho. God tore down the walls. He did use the people, just like he'll use us when he begins to tear down the strongholds in our life. And so, looking at Ai, the Israelites go into Ai, and they obliterate it, just like God does with all of our stuff. And later in the book, we'll see that they go into all the land, and they begin to wipe out these pockets of rebellion, these pockets of sinful people. And so, actually, what we see in Scripture is... uh, God deals really harshly with these Canaanite people. In fact, he tells the people, he tells Joshua and the people of Israel, totally wipe them out. That's hard. That's hard to hear. It's hard to think about. What do you mean? Genocide? Complete genocide? Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. wait. What happened to God's mercy? What happened to God's grace? Well, that's a good question. Why would God do that even to the women and the children, right? Are they, are they sinful? Hey, are, we, are we born innocent? No, we're born guilty. We're born with a sin nature. It's not that we sin that makes us sinners, it's that we're born sinful. So we're not innocent. But let's take a look at who these Canaanite people were. Let's take a look at Canaan. And so, essentially, the Canaanite people are descendants of the son, the grandson of Noah, right? Noah, we all know who Noah is? Two people. Okay, we're going to work on that. So Noah, Noah had a son named Ham. Ham had a son named Canaan, right? Canaan is the grandson of Noah, and he goes off into the land and starts these tribes of Canaan, right? And so six to eight hundred years before Joshua, the, the nation of Canaan had a chance to repent, to turn away from their wicked ways and follow God. How about that for mercy? How about God said, you had six to 800 years, no turning, today is judgment day. Right? I mean, don't we face that as Christians? Don't we face a life? At some point, we have to turn and face God. If we never turn, what happens? what happens? We go to hell. Without Christ, without this turning, without this repentance, we face judgment day. And when we face judgment day, we'll have a public defender. We won't have the best that God has to offer. We won't have Jesus at our side. We'll be void of who Christ is. And without Christ... Our destination is hot and bleak. And so what we see here is kind of this whole stony heart thing, this idea. In fact, we start seeing that. God begins to set the narrative long before Joshua, long before the Canaanites. God set the tone 
in Genesis chapter 1. When he created the heavens and the earth. When he created the light, and then he set the days in motion. There'll be evening and morning the first day. That's kind of strange. I thought days were 24 hours and they kind of ran dark to dark, right? With daylight in the middle. Mm. Old Testament, they look at the lunar and we start in darkness and we come to the light, just like our salvation experience. We start in darkness and move to the light because of God's grace. God seeks after us, we don't seek after him, and he brings us into the light. And so day one, God set the tone, you'll go from darkness to light. And so we have the same thing with Jericho, we see that stony heart to a soft pliable heart at Gilgal. Now, when we look at all these fortified cities in the land of Cana, there's a lot going on, and all these cities had their proclivities. They all had their problems. Um, much, like, much like us today, we are materialistic. Maybe, maybe we love our money. Maybe we have some sexual proclivities. Maybe, maybe we're just a manipulator. Maybe we just like to manipulate people to do what we want them to do. Maybe we're angry. Maybe, and I'm not talking to anybody in here, we like food or sports or we like to control people. Or maybe we're OCD or her ugly sister, CDO. You know what that is? Yeah, OCD is obsessive control disorder. CDO is compulsive disorder alphabetized. How you doing, broken, huh? Right? So then there's, maybe you have a, maybe you have a uh, God that's political, or maybe you're apolitical, or maybe you're a nationalist. Whatever your sin is, there was a town in Cana that represents our proclivities. And God marches into all of those cities with the intent to clean up our lives. The idea was to set the promised land straight, to clean it out of the, of the sin that was there. And so that's what this map, the one that's gone, represents to us today. We see that. It's just kind of a, a show of who we are and how we change into. So on the map, you see the pink. That's the, at, the, at this time in chapter 8, this is what the conquest looked like. The pink shows where Israel had taken over. That's where they had established, right? Those are their borders. So what happens when you run something out? Once you get rid of an old habit, right? I was an alcoholic for a lot of years. And when I got rid of, when God began to clean that out of me, when God set me free of that, did I just leave it empty? Did I just kind of, okay, great, one less habit to deal with. What happened? What do we do? Now we fill that, we fill that with spiritual things. God begins to change us and move us and shake us, and we read God's Word. We read this book right here. I know, I know that this is an old book, and it really doesn't pertain a lot to us. Yeah, this is are all in all. This is how we operate today in the world and at all times in history. This book tells us who God is and how we live together. And we're going to see that when he does that, okay? So the idea is he begins to shake us and move us out. So this is an opportunity. See, right now, this is an opportunity. If you don't know Christ and you're in here, you've heard the gospel. Jesus died for you on the cross rose again on the third day to set you free 
so that when he comes or when you die, you'll get to go to heaven with him. If you're here and you don't know Christ, this is your opportunity to accept him as Lord and Savior. Now, if you need to make that decision, you need to talk to somebody about that, feel free to come to one of us after service, call us on the phone, whatever that looks like. But this is an opportunity. Don't let this day go by without making that decision for the call of Christ in your life. Now, we're not done. I know you got excited right there. You're like, woo, invitation, going home. No, I'm going. We got another hour and a half. So that was just my introduction. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 8 in your Bible. Y'all have your Bibles, right? I know there's a lot of people on vacation. Maybe you thought it was vacation. I didn't need your Bible. You need your Bible, right? Because this is our sword. This is how we fight the battles of Jericho and any other battle that we got to fight. It's through God's Word. And so, Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourners as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Incredible, right? I mean, the entire assembly of the Israelites, 2.5-ish million people, minus 36, were there on that day. So here's the picture, right? So we just left Israel at Ai, somewhere there. We left left Israel at Ai, right? And all of a sudden, we see them at Mount Gerizim. Well, Mount Gerizim is about 25 or 30 miles north of where they were at. And so they marched straight up 25 or 30 miles to Shechem. Now, we don't see Mount Ebal on there. We see Shechem. So from Ai to Shechem, they make that march. You are marching in enemy territory, y'all. You ever, you, ever, you ever marched in enemy territory? You ever been somewhere, you, you kind of sketch, right? Been in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, and, and, and it's sketch, right? Here's, here's what God does. He puts his hands over the Israelite. He pours out his favor on Israel and protects them as they march 20 hours, 30 hours to Shechem, Right? And so this, the purpose here is God has a plan. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 27. We just read over everything that was there that, uh, that they were going to do. I want to show you the command somewhere. Okay, Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8. So here's what we've seen typically with Israel what you have is a very um, disobedient people, right? 
They wandered in the desert for 40 years because they were disobedient. They didn't want to do what God said. Here we find another, another kind, another generation of people. Listen here, verse 27. This is Moses speaking to the assembly, speaking to Joshua and, and the whole of Israel. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. This is, in, this is going on right now. We just read it. That's happening at Shechem, uh, at Mount Ebal and Gerizim. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with the plaster, and you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stone. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on these stones all the words of the law very plainly. Incredible. So now they've marched up the center of this country where they're foreigners and, and, and they're at, in battle, they're at war with this nation. And then they're going to go celebrate. They don't own, do they own everything in the land? This is after that. This is chapters 12 and 13. So they don't own anything yet. They own Jericho and Ai and Bethel. Right? They march up there and then they celebrate. When's the best time to attack? When your enemy's not aware. When they don't know what's going on. We don't see that happening. God completely protects them from the enemy. See, when we are in duty to God, he pours out his protection on his people. When you're in enemy territory and you're at battle and you're going to war and you're fighting the fight like God's called you to fight, God puts his hand of protection on you, on us as a people. That's a beautiful, incredible thing that God does. Now, here's a... Uh, so we've seen all this and now we're thinking... This is an incredibly spiritual book, right? Wow. This is, there's a lot of spiritual stuff happening here. This isn't just spiritual. This is, listen, that's a Paul Harvey moment. Let's hear the rest of the story. So we know that all, as we talked about the spiritual side of that, the physical side is that God actually did, these battles did actually happen, and people actually died by the millions. Lots of people died, right? This happened. We have to be prepared. We have to be prepared to be obedient to God. And that means facing the enemies. We, we oftentimes like to say that people aren't our enemy, that, that, that people aren't our enemy. But when we look here, we don't really see that. We really see that, that people have turned their back on God, and God knew it. Now, does that mean we get to go in and wipe them out today? No. There's a, there's a, there's a new covenant that says we love them, but we do confront them. We do confront their sin. We do address the wrong in their lives when we're in relation with them or when they're trying to indoctrinate society, right? We want to address the hard things, and that's never easy. And so the rest of the story is we have a fight to, 
we have a battle to fight. And it is against flesh and blood. And it is in the supernatural. And it is against powers and principalities of another realm that we're not in. But God is. And so we fight that battle in the natural and in the supernatural. We have to be willing to fight that fight. And so now you're going to say to me, You're going to say to me, well, God has mercy on those people. Sure, yeah, and grace, and Jesus. All of those things, yeah, yes, let's love people. But let's also be willing to address people when they're wrong. We have a tendency to give up our position. We also give up this book. We have a tendency when we go into battle, um, well, you, you, that's, that's God's word. You can't, that's not, you can't use that. Why would I give up my sword? in a fight. That makes no sense. We fight from this position. We battle from here. Without this, you don't even have a toothpick. You're barehanded. You're defenseless. So we fight from this position of God's Word. All right, so here's what we see. Let's look at verse 30 and 32. At the time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. So all of this is happening. This Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim create a really cool amphitheater. There's this, this as the people come in, it's kind of it's kind of a natural amphitheater, so it amplifies the voices of the people, right, of, of those who are speaking. And so they settle in here, half the tribes on Mount Ebal, half the tribes on Mount Gerizim, right? And then there's a telling. Now here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. God has marched his people up to Shechem, up to this amphitheater to establish something. He's establishing a nation. He's establishing a homeland for his people. He's establishing a government. Here it is. And I, and I, know, I know we're struggling. He's establishing some... some now, now, let me ask this question. First, let me get a drink. What kind of government does God set up? The theocracy, yeah. What's a theocracy? Theocracy. That's theo is, it's a Greek word. Theo is God. Krasi is rule, strength, or, or government. No, that's not right. Rule, strength, or government, yes. That was right. I was right. All right. I studied that correctly. All right. Um, and so, so God sets up a theocracy. Listen. I contend with you today that God set up a theocracy in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, turn there or look up there. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 15 to 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I shall make him a helper fit for him. What just happened there? What do we see? God established government and politics at the same time. He's God, He rules it all. He laid out the garden for him, said, Here you get to live with everything. He gave him one rule. 
Why, why one rule? Why not just let them live? Because without rules, we don't experience freedom completely. We don't experience freedom in its wholeness. We experience freedom broken. With rules, God establishes complete freedom in the right way, in God's way. If you want to do it without God, that's fine. I think we tried that here in America one time. Uh, we called it Chad just recently. Yeah, we had, we had a little country in Portland. I think it was Portland. And, and they called it Chad. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a beautiful place. It was glowing at night with all the lights lit by fire of the buildings that were burning, people being shot in the streets. Beautiful, right? No, no, it was horrible. People were scared to go in. Cops wouldn't go in there. Cops stood on the outside going, <laughs> it's crazy in there, I'm not going. If your cops are afraid, what's the problem? No God, no rule, chaos. When chaos rules, that tells us there's an absence of what? Class? Yes, God. Yeah, yeah, God. Chaos means no God. That's, there's no rule. There's nothing. It's nuts. People do their own thing. There was no trash pickup. It was insane, y'all. It was crazy. So God establishes government right away. And we see what happens when we don't obey God in his rule. We try to do it our own way, right? Eve had a real problem with that, didn't she? And her husband was real bright. <laughs> he said, hey, hon, I'll take a piece. Let me have a bite, right? Set everything topsy-turvy. So God does this amazing thing. He sets up government. He does the same thing here in Joshua when we're reading this. Here in the land of Canaan, he is establishing a theocracy, right? That's beautiful. Listen, the, the, the only way we can live in communion together, in community together, rightly, is if God is in charge, if God is ruling our hearts. But you see right here, church, the ecclesia. We're fixing to study ecclesia. We're fixing to go into that. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Um, I'm going to be on vacation. No. Um, God sets up government in church. Why? Because without government, without politics, without the rule of people, we have a tendency to do our own thing. We have a tendency to set up our own ruling. We want to do it our way. We have our idea of how things go. God says, wait a minute, I think my ways are higher than your ways. Isn't that? No, that's not in this book. That's, that's not relevant. This book is old. It doesn't, doesn't really apply. Yeah, that's in God's word. God's ways are higher than our ways. We should follow God. That's a great idea. What do you think? Okay, two people. <clears throat> okay, so when we think about politics, okay, Politics, let me define that for you. Politics, because we have, we have this, our minds just, we just, that's what happens. Politics and people, it makes a mess. Because we're thinking of Ted Cruz, we're thinking of Joe Biden, we're thinking of all of these politicians, and we put that in our politics, and they're not the same. They're not the same at all. In fact, most of them don't have a modicum of Christ in their life. Politics is this, check this out, real simple. I, mean, I want to get the definition completely correct. It says this. Politics is the way that people living in groups make decisions. Politics is about making agreements between people so that they can live together in groups such as, oh, tribes, cities, and countries. That ever happen? That never happens, right? It happens all the time. Here's kind of the, here's kind of 
the etymology of this word, where this comes from. It's an old French word, so, it's, so we don't see it in the Bible, right? So if it's not in the Bible, we, we can't believe it. Dinosaurs aren't in the Bible either. The word. I think they're there, right? Computers. They don't exist. It's not in the Bible. All right? So the idea is, the etymology of this word is, is from the old French called politique, from the Latin politicus concerning civil administration. The Greek word is, and I'm not German, so I'm going to hack this all up, or I'm not Greek, so I'm going to hack it all up, politikos, from polites, meaning citizen, and from polis, meaning city. So citizens in a city, how do we work together? How do we live together? How do we have different ideas about things and still be okay with each other? See, we're getting away from that. We're getting away from the true meaning of what politics is, the true meaning of being able to live together in a community and disagree and have different points of view and have different ideas about how things work. In fact, if you have a say that's opposite of somebody else's, you're not allowed to have it. You need to be quiet. Sit down, you bigot. That's the world we live in today. So now, God didn't just create... There is, that's, theocracy isn't the only form of government. There's a couple other forms of government. One is called homocracy, and the other one is ecclesiocracy. And a lot of people have a tendency to confuse ecclesiocracy with theocracy. Theocracy is God's rule. Ecclesiocracy is the rule of a religion over the people. Let me, a particular institutionalized religion governs society. So an example of that would be Islam or the Church of England, right? Those are two ecclesiocracies. Then the homocracy is the rule of man, where man is ruling. And those would look like a republic, a democracy, um, communism, socialism, all the other isms, right? So those are man-made, so they're built on a foundation of theocracy, but they pull away from and they make up their own rules. They get rid of God, communism, socialism, Marxism. They get rid of God, boom, right? And so that's what we see in the world today. When man tries to do it, we have these two other fakes, fake governments or false governments or um, unbiblical, ungodly governments that come in and try to rule your lives. And that's Ecclesiocracy is why America is here today, because those people were told, you can't worship this way, you have to worship this way. If you don't worship this way, we're going to persecute you, and they were persecuted, so they left, and they came here, and they set up shop uh, and set up a republic based on the rule of God. And so a republic has a, a fun little difference in there for us. So, so, and I know you're thinking, well, does God really deal with politics? Is there politics anywhere in Scripture? Um, we have these little books, uh, and I think you'll recognize them, called First and Second Kings. What does that, that deal with? deals with kings, right? The Chronicles, that deals with the rising and falling of kings, the, the good and the bad. So there's, there's four books right there. Then Leviticus, that's a bunch of laws. That's politics, right? Romans talks about obey the government, right? Obey the rule of the land. When it's good, when it's not good, you obey the rule of God. Paul did that, right? Peter did that. They ended up in prison. Paul wrote a lot of his letters from prison because he was in opposition to the government because the government said, don't preach God's word. Stop it. He said, I will not. I must obey my heavenly Father who is far above who you are. Right? <clears throat> so we see that God's word does touch. Now, God's word is not a political book. It's a, it's a God book. It's about God. And it touches on politics, just like it's not a science book, but it touches on science. Just like it's not a math book, but it touches on math. There's lots of numbers in there. There's a book called Numbers, right? And so 
God's Word is not any of those types of books. Thank goodness, because those books change all the time. God's Word never changes. It stays the same throughout generations, always and forever. Here's what we see. Look at verse 33 to 35. Got to wrap this up, take y'all into the Methodist lunchtime. 33, and all Israel sojourned, as well as the native-born and their elders, officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides. Who was there? Immigrants, the officials, their leaders, and their priestly leaders. All those people stood in the assembly to hear the word of God. Why? Re-education, not indoctrination. Re-educate us on what God's word says. And so God starts there, begins to tell the people how to live. And so in verse 34, it says, and afterward, he read all the words of the law, right? The blessing and the curse. What does that mean? That means if you obey, here's the blessing. If you disobey, ow, there's the woodshed, right? And so blessing and cursing, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Hey, this is how we live together in community. And this is how we help our immigrants assimilate into our community. God's word, look, the sojourner was there. I know you missed it. I know you missed it. The sojourners, those are immigrants. Those are people who are coming in, right? And so they all sat at the day long. Listen, I know y'all are thinking, God, this guy's long-winded today, right? Mm, no, no, this took all day. 613 laws, by the way, 10 commandments. That wasn't a five-minute reading. And, and they had to build an altar, Right? Without cutting anything, they just pick up the rocks and build them, right? Why did God do that? Why? It makes, it's kind of weird that, why do I just set up stones? Why? Because anytime man touches anything and, and, and messes with it, the curse of man is on it. That's why, that's why we sacrifice to burn it up, because fire does what? Purifies, yeah. And so all of this has purpose, all of this has reason. It's not just happenstance. There's a reason behind all that God does. And so here they are, they're learning God's word. It's important for us to remind our citizens of church, our citizens of our nation, our citizens of our state, and our citizens of our cities. How do we live according to God's word? We've given that up. We've essentially walked away. We've turned that over to the pagans who know no God. The only God they know is self. What I want, what I think, what I feel. When we do that, and I'm not saying, don't hear this. Don't hear that I'm telling you, you've you got to get into politics. You've got to do this. You've you, you got to vote. You're a citizen. That's your duty as a good citizen. As a Christian citizen of America, you vote. That's the least, right? I'm saying at least do that. But I would say something more. But whatever that looks like, right? But the idea is when we turn it over, to the lost world, where do they pull their morality from? Where do they understand law from? Where do they understand getting along together from? We see when God is pulled away, look at what happens in society. Chad. Chad is what happens. 
That's a small taste. Little bitty Chad inside of Portland is a little bitty taste of how this country could be in five or ten years if we don't step to the plate and remind America and the world, because it's not just America, is God sovereign? If God's sovereign, he's sovereign over everything, because he created it all. So if he created everything, that means he created politics. If he created politics, that means he's in charge, and we should take the message to the world that God is in charge. And we don't force that on them, but we live accordingly, we walk accordingly, and we love accordingly, and when we are obedient to God, His protection is over us. His protection is off. Judgment is on the world today. Read Romans. His, his judgment is on America today. Read Romans. There's trouble in the land. We are quickly sliding away from our roots, from our foundations, from what God set forth. And I'm not saying that, that America is a godly country, but it did have godly moorings. God says, anyone who honors me, I will honor him. That can be expanded. You can look at that, push it out further. Any nation who honors me, I will honor them. Right? So this isn't about we're godly, we're perfect. This is about God honors those who honor him. If we'll honor him, that'll change the world. We won't have to go make democracies and republics around the world. We won't have to police the world. The world will begin to police itself based on God's word. We know this is spooling down, but that's no excuse to check out of the fight. No excuse to check out of the fight. Mark my words. We are in a fight. We are in a battle. Spiritual and physical. And if we don't stand our ground, if we don't walk according to God's ways, if we don't pick up this book and walk, it will be a major mistake. Let me tell you what Tony Evans said. He wrote a book called Kingdom Politics. It says this, The failure to properly connect God's relationship to politics based on his word has left individuals, political leaders, and nations void of the knowledge needed to govern society as the Creator intended. Now, maybe you didn't get that, maybe you didn't understand that. Let me, let me see if I can't explain it a little better or a little differently. Let's say you're struggling in your personal life. Let's say you're having a hard time and your personal life is starting to unravel, starting to come apart of the seams. You're starting to drink way too much. You're starting to think terrible thoughts about terrible people all the time, and life is, is starting to crater around you. And you come to me for help. Where do I go? I go to God's Word. Let's say you're, you're married, and your marriage is falling apart, and it's starting to crater, and it's starting to crumble, and it's in shambles, and your kids are running buck wild, and you come to me and you ask for help. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go to God's Word. Because I don't know how to fix your family, but I know a guy. God's Word. Let's say your church is in shambles. The elders are running roughshod over everybody and oppressing people, and I have that capability. I'm capable of doing that. And you come to me for help. Where do I go? I go to God's Word. You're starting to see the flow here, right? 
Let's say you're a young person and you want to get married. And, and, and you're looking for the right spouse that fits you, right? But you don't, know, you don't know where to go. You don't know what to look for in a spouse. And you come to me for help. What am I going to tell you? Go to God's Word. God's Word will tell you what your spouse should look like. Right? But what do we do when a nation is in shambles and it's falling apart around your ears and it has little chads popping up everywhere? What do we do? Well, well, we turn to the experts. We turn to the politicians. We turn to them for answers because we have no idea where to get the answers. All of a sudden, we have no idea how to fix the political landscape of America. We, we're, we're clueless, but we go to the experts. Let me tell you, man will never, ever, ever fix the problems in any nation, anywhere, he's incapable. Only God can fix a country. We go to God's word. We have a tendency to give that up when it comes to politics. Let's go to the experts. Let's go to them. Let's leave it to them. They'll fix it. How's that working for us? It's pretty broken. Let me tell you, God's word has all the answers for living in this world today and getting to the next one. You ready to go with me? Come on, Jesus.